Welcome to in today's podcast dealing with saline soils. It's a great thrill to have such a broad audience from such a broad geography. Before we start, I could give you uh, some reading to look forward to. If those of you that follow Green News, there will be an article entitled On Salty Ground on March 9th, coming up soon. And on March 23rd, another one dealing with how you measure soil salinity in the field using the EM38. So my objective today is to discuss the topic of soil salinity and to leave you with something between your ears that was not there when we started. I never was in the business of telling farmers how to farm or those that advise them, but to, rather to provide the information. So we're going to proceed in the following way. We'll talk first of all about what is the problem. We can't manage what we don't know. <clears throat> so we have to understand the problem. <clears throat> and once we know what the problem is, then we have to know why it's there in the first place. So we'll look at the mechanisms that cause the problem. Why is the soil saline in the first place? If we're going to think about managing it or fixing it, we have to know what the mechanisms are that are making it in the first place. Third, we will discuss how you measure soil salinity in the field. Uh, precision agriculture has become uh, uh, more prevalent in the last decade or so, and uh, many companies that use uh, do precision maps and uh, soil, soil zones within the field for management purposes, mostly fertility, uh, use an instrument called the EM38 to measure soil salinity. I own one personally that I've used for 30 some odd years and uh, never go anywhere in the field without dragging along an EM38. So we'll make you familiar with that if you're not and what it can do for you. Sure, it's good to uh, send samples to a lab, but uh, this is a, a very good instrument that most agronomists uh, should be using. Then we'll get on how to fix the problem and what it takes to fix it. Uh, this is not, uh, soil salinity isn't new and the so solutions aren't new. We've known the fundamentals of what it takes to actually fix the problem for, for a long time. How practical it is in various scenarios is uh, something that we will discuss along the way, but we'll talk about fixing the problem. Now, there's some of them that are really not fixable in any practical uh, scheme. So if you can't fix it, how do you cope with the problem? And I guess I could give away the, the answer. Uh, we'll talk in a little more detail. If you can't fix the problem, the only way you can cope with it is quit growing annual crops and go to perennials, particularly grass. And there's some game-changing things of the last few years that have come up in that regard. Lastly, we want to send you away with an understanding of the impact of Mother Nature's cycles on soil salinity. I have lived through one of those cycles on my little farm at Dundurn, and so these things do cycle, and we provide you information to show you how, that's, uh, how that works. So we'll start off then talking about what the problem is. Evaporation is greater transportation, yet you've got a high water table. So what's that all about? That must mean that water is coming from somewhere else. So either it's coming from beside us or underneath us. And particularly in the areas of thick glacial deposits like we have in much of Western Canada, particularly Saskatchewan, 
more often than not, it, we're standing right on it and it's coming, coming at us from underneath. So that's basically the problem. Now there are related problems like solenetic soils and, and I, I don't intend to uh, talk too much about those today unless there's questions in Alberta. There's a big belt went all the way from Vegarville down to Brooks and there, there, there was a research station at Vegarville dealt with that at one time. But we'll talk just about those. So we've got a water problem and the water carries the salts and it's evaporation. So that's, that's our first, uh, first subject dealt with. So then we got to think, okay, what are the, what are, I think we're done with that slide for now. I think what, yeah. uh, I have a question for you, Les. Yeah. So if you say it's a water problem, but maybe more specifically, especially when you, when you isolate some issues in Saskatchewan, a water table problem, does that water table problem ever go away? The water table fluctuates, but as we'll see in the mechanisms, the thing that Make salinity is that there's something keeping the water table high in dry periods. That's why it's there in the first place. That's why it's there in the first place. So there's something keeping the water table high even in, in dry periods. See, in normal situations, if there isn't something pushing at you from underneath, when it quits raining, the water table drops. And in this case, the water table doesn't drop. So it's the, you, you have to Basically, to understand soil salinity, you have to understand Mother Nature's plumbing system. That's what it's all about. So the yeah. white crust is what we see. So yeah. well, let's move on to what the, what the mechanisms of it for are. are. And, and there's a couple, there's one main mechanism, and I'll talk a little bit about some others because we have a, a broad audience. You can have a situation where you have very thin glacial deposits over the stuff that was here before the glaciers, which is usually marine, very salty marine shales, and you can get some shallower saline seeps. And uh, uh, that is a thing that's present in Montana, some parts of southern and uh, Alberta and Saskatchewan. But even in those cases, there's a lot of, a lot of situations where the driving factor is something di different. But I did have some experience in uh, Montana in the uh, late 70s and early 80s when we were just starting to get into salinity uh, work here we took trips to the highwood bench at fort benton montana and uh, howard hanford farm and they had uh, shallow saline seeps as they were called and they were working on alfalfa as the big crop to to give it a shock system to use up the extra water and uh, then get, basically getting away from the half and half farming and I happened to talk to Howard not that many years ago. I was uh, scanning old slides and I came across slides from our, our trips down there. And I said, do you want some of these to remind you? And he said, you know, that's Lindy problem. We thought we had it licked back. And it's because things in cycles. The other thing you can have is, is uh, sloughs with rings around them. And uh, uh, bathtub ring is what I, I count it as. But they're there for a reason too. Uh, if if uh, a bathtub ring in a slough was a cause of salinity, every slough would have a ring. Not every slough has a ring. So it has a ring when there's something underneath that's reducing the, the downward flow. Now the real cause, and this this is what we found out in, in, in our work, and this is what basically broke the thing open. When we started to do this, there was a very 
well-respected extension person in the Saskatchewan Department of Agriculture, Larry Gramick by name. And we took him out in the Blaine Lake area and showed him what we're doing and uh, why things were the way they were. And we had, by that time, we had flowing wells and water laying on the ground and we, we knew pretty well what we were doing. And he said, you know, it's like walking into a dark closet and somebody turning on the light because you'd stand there and, and wonder where's this stuff coming from. So the, the uh, mechanism is that in the upland, the excess water comes in mainly through sloughs uh, or focused there, not only, and uh, the water goes down and the previous mechanisms were all based on this impermeable bedrock, so-called bedrock layer, and people envisage that as a hard bedrock, and that was causing it to slide sideways and coming out. But it's not the impermeable, it's the permeable, and, and it's these, these aquifers. And certainly almost all of central Saskatchewan and many other parts of Western Canada as well, that's the underlying mechanism. And if you don't know where that is, you don't know how to, how to solve the problem. So artesian discharge from an aquifer is, uh, is the main cause. And you can be out on a flat plain. I was with a, a good friend in the, the Rosetown Testier country not that many years ago, and we're driving along, and, and all of a sudden it's a flat plain, and here's some slendy. I get out the geology, hydrogeology map that we made with Christensen. So we hired... When we did the salsa lindy, I hired a hydrogeologist and a, and a geologist as private consultants to solve the problem. And his map showed that that's where that aquifer pinks down. Now, if you look at that diagram, you take that diagram and take that aquifer on the, uh, the arrows going up there on the bottom side. Now, if that aquifer doesn't pinch out, that's pinching out out on the plains, you see. If that happens to connect to a deep river, like for example, in Saskatoon, the forestry farm aquifer, uh, comes right under the north part of Saskatoon and it discharges at Peterson's Ravine and other springs along the Saskatchewan River. And the uh, University of Saskatchewan Kernan Farm has the well that proves exactly that. If that connection to the river wasn't there, all the best land that uh, that the university has and all of the plain here would be would be a salt flat. So that's that's the basic uh, basic mechanism. To when we were, when we started out on this, we uh, one of the first sites we're at was at Shonovan, and we had a, an auger. Like, I had a notion that we didn't know how deep it was. So the, the mechanism, the, the equipment at that time was a sturdy drill, and it'll go 20 feet. And I thought, well, what if the answer's at 21 feet? So we had auger enough to go in uh, 45 feet. and The stick up was 43 feet. So we went down to this place at Shonovan, and we drilled 43 feet. And precisely nothing. There was a little brown tail, a little seepage. There was nothing. So that's when we hired the geologist, and uh, he said, you know, soils is a top-down problem. Geology is a bottom-up. You can't have a soft underbelly. He hired the local driller. The answer was at 53 feet. And people say, if it's 50 feet, what's that got to do with surface? It has everything to do with the surface. It has nothing to do with depth. It has to do with pressure. And uh, at the bottom like that, the pressure is high. And that mechanism is working 24 hours a day, 365 days a year, and it's been doing it for the last 10,000 years. So you have to think in terms of depth and you have to think in terms of time. So that yeah. uh, at, at uh, 53 feet was the, the Shonovan aquifer. And at that time, it had head just below soil surface, a few inches below soil surface. And we set in a nest of piezometers. That means you put different pressure, uh, different gauges in, all sealed in, so you know the pressure up or down get the upward gradient. And uh, 
we told that farmer, here's this uh, 20, 30 acres, plant it to grass, uh, forget you ever owned it and uh, take a bit of hay and carry on with the rest of your farm. And at that time, there were, he was, uh, the caragana hedges were, and the summer fallow were causing the problem. And if he pushed over the caragana hedges and quits now, summer fallow is, is a problem for sure. It, it makes it worse, but it doesn't cause it. And uh, it, just keep that piece of grass. Those things are still there. The grass is still there all those years later from 1982. And uh, that well now flows. And when I got word of it flowing, I said, oh my, I'm going to have to show him how to plug it. No, no, he said I like it. <laughs> it reminds me of what that So yeah. this is the position, folks, and if you don't know this, you don't know much about it. Now, somebody said there's uh, there's people from China here. There was a, a colleague, I spent some time in China, but a colleague of mine was there, and he said, you know, he came back and he found out the deeper they flowed, the, the deeper they dug the wells, the higher the water came. Guess what? That's the artesian pressure. That's the pressure, and it's huge pressure. So, okay. Uh, yeah. <clears throat> Okay, well, that's good. That's that's. Uh, so you're saying what, what the mechanism that causes the problem is actually water pressure. And and for people on today that actually can't see the presentation, they're just listening to the podcast. You're you're saying basically this could be kilometers, but you know, from the actual inflow to the outflow, it it could be kilometers oh, under the soil. That's why I consider, when we started, we're looking at where's the nearest tail? We'll plant the nearest tail, they'll fall, and it'll all dry up and go away. And I remember standing on a, 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 an old pasture south of the town, a cut knife, and looking around, and there wasn't a hill to be seen for a lot of miles away. And we ended up doing that. And, and there's my book. We ended up there was a nice little aquifer about 40 feet deep, and we put uh, we just used the auger. By that time, we knew what we were doing. Put the auger in and, and put in a, a test well, and, and uh, it had enough pressure. I had to, we had to keep extending. And there's a picture of me somewhere, all strung out. With my hand up, I reach eight feet, and it was uh, pouring water up up that high. So, it can it can be kilometers, miles. Yes, this is not not a not a local thing at all. Yeah, and it's long lasting, okay. and those things keep that. That's why that's what's keeping the water table high in in times of uh, uh, dry times. Now the the uh, pressure in the aquifer will go up and down a little bit, but nothing nearly like it does at the near surface. And for those people in Saskatchewan, if you want to go to the water security website, you can get, and, and the last slide will show, I'm showing you one of those and what, what it can do for you. Uh, those that have Henry Sandbuck, the two guys that I hired were, were Earl Christensen, geologist, who's recently deceased, and Bill Manili, hydrogeologist. And uh, I'll never forget Manili out in the country at uh, Wilkie, and, and I was all confused, and, and he, he laid the map out on the hood of the truck and showed me what was going on. He said, why do you pay me such good money to tell you that water runs downhill? So, so the, only reason, the only reason we got to first base was that we hired them. We'd, we'd be messing around with 15 and 20 foot holes uh, yet if uh, if it hadn't been for them. But that, that, was, uh, that was a game changer. So that's the yeah. mechanism. Okay. Yeah, I'll stop you there. Last, I'm gonna ask a question to Mike, uh, bring Mike in. So you, you Mike, have spent years working with agronomists and consultants across across the West. What percentage of the time are you having a conversation with their concerns about salinity? You know, is it something that's be, that everybody's dealing with or becoming more prevalent or is it just because the cost of land is getting higher and people not just see it, but they want to try to do something about it? Well, you know, you know the honest, yeah, the honest truth is 
not many people ask about salinity. Everybody sees it. And I, and I think the reason less is on is because they don't understand it and they don't know what to do about it. And 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 you're right, you know, we, land is getting more expensive. So people are interested in fixing this problem. Like we got tile drainage going on, you know, and I know in Southern Manitoba and various small places, even here north of Edmonton, people are, are starting to look at tile drainage because they, they're starting to learn that you got to drain the water out the bottom if you want to try and improve the, the salinity. So I think Les will be getting to that. But, you know, with, with land prices, the cost of producing now, farmers can't afford to, to be seeding in the same place year after year after year, not getting any revenues back. So they're, they're looking at solutions rather than just putting it up with it as far as I'm concerned. And there's a, there's a changing shift taking place in my view that many farms are very large and farmers are having trouble keeping up. So I think there's a, there's a concept now, I'm gonna improve the land that I have, fix it on the long-term rather than go and buy more land that's got the same kind of problem. Maybe it's the neighbors or somewhere else or buy land that's, that's better. So I think there's a lot of factors taking place. And, and globally, what's driving this all is the concern with, with climate change. You know, most of the work going on now in research is looking at uh, dealing with abiotic stresses, which are primarily drought and salinity on a global basis. So I think we've got a, a whole shift in focus on a global basis as well, Craig. Yeah. There's another yeah, yeah, point. Good point. There's another point when you're talking about uh, salinity. There, there's some places that aren't saline, and they never will be. I was raised uh, in the Rosetown country near Milton. It's a uh, good Regina heavy clay. Uh, of considerable depth, uh, sitting on top of uh, whatever the glaciers had. The deep soft water wells are 400 feet deep and the water's 300 feet, it drains to the river. The well that we had was 80 feet deep and the water sat at 70 feet and it drains to uh, McDonald Creek and eventually to uh, Goose Lake. You could summer follow that home quarter I was raised on for the next hundred, next thousand years and it wouldn't have an acre of salinity on. It would be all washed into Goose Lake, mind you, but. <laughs> Uh, and uh, summer follow is an issue and it'll juice up a problem that's there, but it's not the fundamental cause. And you can't manage a problem that you don't understand. So we got to understand what's going on. And so there's a question here that goes back to what you just talked about last when it comes to the mechanism that causes the problem. What actually forces it at a point? What, what forces that water table or forces that pressure up? Is there a deadhead? This is coming from Darcy, but what actually is causing the issue that's pushing the, you know, the soluble salts to the, to the surface. The head is being driven by the water that's coming in at a higher elevation. If, if a well is going to flow, it has to be connected. There has to be a pipeline to a higher elevation. And that higher elevation might be hills. It might be fairly, uh, it might be a plain with, a, a, you know, not a very sharp elevation, but there has to, it has to be tied into a higher elevation. So the head comes from the water coming in at a higher elevation. And like you show in this diagram, it can't get out. Again, if this aquifer hooked up to a major drainage way, there is no problem. Hmm. Yeah, so it, it, this actually, okay, so. this is actually, if you want to go back, called the, the Prairie Profile, the guy by the name of Abel. Long before I came along, people had these things all figured out, but they were in geology, not salts. <laughs> <laughs> so, the, so the discharge is caused by what? What causes the actual water to push up where it discharges and causes the salinity? Pressure, pressure, pressure. It's okay, pressure. but that's a low, 
and that's a lower area obviously water from... moves from high pressure to low pressure so the pressure yeah. like the pressure down there if uh, we had one at beachy uh and uh it had a big head on it and we had a well that we had to go three times to plug it but at that location the aquifer was very it was good it was a silty aquifer it didn't produce a lot of water so nobody knew we had a problem because Farmer, he went over and had a new house. He's going to put a well by the house. The geologist took a look, said, "If you get our pressure, the permeability town of Beachy, you're going to have trouble. Make sure you're on a on a hill and you know where the water. 150 feet of blue water, 50 feet in the air. He had running water in the in the second story of his house. And if he'd if he'd have uh, <laughs> house, he'd have been he'd been screwed. <laughs> but so back, to, back to that, back to that question. As the pressure comes down, it pushes the water up to the surface and you get a pothole that's then full of water and it never goes down because the pressure is always pushing up. So that's how right. do those bathtub rings and all that surface salinity keep increasing at the surface? I think the, is the, the, uh, the bathtub ring is there because the, the pressure is enough to uh, slow down the, the, the drainage. It, it'll drain, but slow. Yeah. And you see it just and what this does is keep the water table high enough in, 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 in dry periods. That's that's what it does. And uh, that's there. And, you know, we've Do you got want to, uh, go ahead. You want to comment, Scott, asking about uh, the Quill Lake situation. You're probably very familiar with the, the Quill Lake uh, area and, and uh, how it's actually causing that the greater salinity in that. that that part of Saskatchewan? Uh, that part of Saskatchewan has been saline since before the white man ever saw Western Canada. <laughs> okay. There you go. And it's, it's based it's the same, the pressure. Yeah. And really, it's all figured out. The, the, the aquifers are there and the heads are there. And uh, it's just a known fact that there's a big salt flat there. And in fact, you can even read some of the old hind and some of those old things from 1800. They call them the the uh, the uh, salt flats. You know, it's the Dayflow salt flats. So they've been there. They're geological. They've been there before white man ever saw the country, long before. Yeah. Yeah. And, and one more question. Least, one more. Yeah. Go ahead. Quill Lakes. You know, out in that country, they had 40 inches of rain and. 2011 and they had another 40 inches in 2014 you know well the water's got to have some place to go that's what's happened out there anyhow yeah. <laughs> I have we'll keep going I, yeah quick question yeah, I, I just when want we to talk say, about just a quick question we talk about okay. drilling wells there's especially where i live here in southwestern manitoba a lot of oil wells the actual oil well drilling actually caused some of this water to move up if you're actually creating an opportunity for that pressure to find a spot to the surface? Uh, well, presumably, I don't know that, you know, uh, I'm, I'm, I'm literate to the, to the base of the Judith River formation, which is about 600 feet in, in most of the areas below that. I'm not that literate. But, uh, you know, if you drill through, you can mess things up for sure, but presumably they know enough how to keep, keep it sealed. I mean, these things can be, can be managed. Uh, and there's there's a basic principle in plugging a when you go to plug a flowing well you have to put enough weight on to keep the pressure down 
Yeah. And in my book, you'll see Manili's diagram. And, and, and we never went anywhere without Manili's diagram. You have to figure out how deep the hole is and how much, guess how much pressure is. And you got to do it up that much, uh, uh, that much pressure to plug it. So anyhow, that's Quill Lakes. Anyhow, we better, better move on. Uh, I'll say just a word about measuring salt salinity in the field. And you mentioned Corey Wellness and, and the EM38. The EM38 is an instrument about a meter long. And we started using that in the salt salinity days. And I, I have one personally that I bought for my consulting business. I don't go anywhere without it. It's a, I won't go into details. It only takes a nine volt battery to run it. And you walk across and it'll, it'll pick up salinity and, and it uh, reads uh, zero to two feet or zero to four feet. So it's just right for, for agriculture. And I think we should. Uh, there should be more use at the uh, field scout scale, and I'm pushing Johnix to make a special unit for this. But the unit that people like Corey Wellness uses to, is a bigger one, and, and it's very good, and that's how they make the maps. And Corey will tell you that he can't make a map without the M38. Now, his is much more than that, but you can't do it without that. Okay, uh, now, any more questions? I won't say anything more about uh, that. I've got all sorts. Yeah, Story there is one question here. I got one question we'll get to before we carry on here. Um, when we start talking about fixing the problem, but this might relate to that. And especially again, I showed a picture here and a lot of us, you know, I'm like you, you've probably driven millions of miles over your career across the country. And a lot of times where you see salinity is actually along the road. And, you know, the creation of that road, it kind of becomes an impermeable barrier that then back, I guess my belief is it backs up the salts in that spot or is there anything we can do to address that if, if it's actually the road that creates the impermeable air that pushes the water up along the roadway. You can uh, set another glacier and redo mother nature's plumbing. Uh, <laughs> uh, when you drive number 11 highway from Saskatoon to Regina there's a lot of road ditch salinity that is all discharged from glacial aquifers out of the Allen Hills. And uh, when we were doing the salinity thing in the early 1980s, there'd always be a meeting in April and the bureaucrats and the money people would come up from Regina and it was just the time because they'd come up there, the snow had just gone, the road ditches were, were white, the snow was gone, but it was still white. Boy, it's a big problem. That's been there forever. It has nothing to do with the highway. The highway just happens to cut it there and let it out. Yeah, the highway has nothing to do with it. You, 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 in, in all of those places, and you can drive in other places, uh, uh, 16 Highway, you know, from uh, just before you get to the uh, park uh, at Edmonton, going from Vermilion Vegreville up onto the, the Elk Island uh, Park oh, yeah. there, there's a whole bunch, a whole bunch of road ditch salinities. So the road ditch salinities, from, uh, uh, the pressure from underneath, and it just, it comes out there because that's the bottom at that particular point. Mm -hmm. You look around the field, find some more. So. The, the highway itself has nothing to do with it. There's an interesting highway story at Radisson. The fielding aquifer is there and they were making a borrow pit and the farmer told them, don't dig the borrow pit. They went ahead and dug it. They tapped into the aquifer, which is there at 20 feet. So if you drive that road, there's a, there's a, a, there's a nice uh, fish pond there because they had to put a berm around it for a half a million dollars. If you don't understand what's underneath you, you're gonna get trouble. Mm -hmm. So that road ditch has nothing to do with the road itself. Perfect. Okay. Okay. Now we're going to fix the problem. There you go. Yeah. So there's uh, only one way to fix the problem. 
that's tile drainage and leaching. And for most of Saskatchewan and Manitoba, uh, tile drainage and le the leaching means irrigation. So there it is, drainage plus leaching. And uh, if in doubt, uh, uh, C mm -hmm. C1 plus 2, you have to have both. Drainage alone isn't going to do it. Now, I have an answer for a question now that I didn't have a few years ago. I had a question from a farmer in Glenborough, Manitoba, and I know that well because my father was raised near there, and so I've been and I know the country. And he said, with our 18 inches of rain, do we have enough rain to do the leaching part of it? And I had a very tentative maybe. But now, thanks to uh, AgVice Labs in North Dakota and John Lee there, they have their lab in Northwest, uh, in Northwood, North Dakota, the town. They started a, a little tile drainage project on a, a sandy loam soil not far from Northwood about 17 years ago, and the farmer drained it with a tile, and, and they kept records of the rainfall, and they measured 10 sites down this all, all the years. And to make a long story short, uh, they were able to desalinize the surface soil enough that he was able to grow pretty good crops. And the one thing about these, you got all kinds of nutrients there, you know, so they're, they're very fertile soils. But they have about 20 inches of rain there. The average over the 17 years was 18.5 or something like that. But in the years when the, the dry, then about the driest they have is 14 inches, then the salt will start coming back up. And then in the wet, it would go back down. But on balance, it, it, did, it, did, it did work. But you know, if you had if you had five years in a row or two, three years in a row, it would come back up. So, you know, when you've got that in that 20 inches of rain, and and uh, mostly in the summer and, and the leaching rain, it, it 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 will work in some some situations. There's a tile drain project that's gone on at uh, Melfort here a few years ago now, and it I think is working. Although there's a, there's a little bit of time yet to be sure, but they did have right after they put it in, they had five inches of rain. And they're right by creeks, so they had some place to put it. So, so uh, you have to have drainage plus leaching and just putting in tiles. The other thing about putting in tiles, people are running around putting in tiles, they don't even know where the water table is. If you don't know where the water table is and how it moves, and, and to put in a water table, you need, uh, it, it's really tough, you know, you, you need to go to the home supply store and you got to get $10 worth of materials. And uh, I have an auger that I didn't pay much money for. You might pay a few hundred dollars for it today. It's called the Dutch auger. And I can put a 10-foot well in in a half an hour, and I'm 80 years old. What the hell's the matter with the kids, you know, Kathy? <laughs> there, is this, there is a thing that's happening now, and I meant to mention that at the start, and I must mention it now. The thing that there's a real revolution in the soil moisture thing. I've been talking about the soil moisture and making maps for 35 years, and, and I never could get anybody to... To, to do what I've done, but young kids are coming along, they're doing way better than me. And it's the soil moisture probes that they put in. And uh, this started with uh, 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 crop intelligence in South Country and Southeast Saskatchewan. It's very rapid adoption. One thing I find with technical things on the farm, if it works, farmers are all over it like a dirty shirt. Uh, look at, uh, look at uh, uh, auto steer, you know, everybody's got it. Variable rate's been a little, little, uh, a little slower coming along, but these moisture probes are all over, all over like a dirty shirt. And at the Ag and Motion site uh, last uh, year, they put in a number of slightly different ones, and they measure to a meter point two every ten centimeters. So I was looking at some of the data with Blake, and I said, "Look, you know, you've got 
you've got 50%, uh, 60% moisture on the bottom depths there, and it never changes all year. That's the water table. Put a well in and make sure that that's exactly what it is. They haven't done that yet. But th that's the other thing you have to realize. The soil is a giant sponge. And the, the soil is about half airspace and half solid water. stuff, organic matter and, and uh, clay and silt and all that kind. And when a soil is at a proper stage for growing crops, about half the pore space is uh, air and about half the pore space is water. When all the pore space is taken up with water, that's the water table. So these soil moisture probes are a real, you know, and this, this revolution, it's a revolution, it really is. And not just for salinity, people, uh, you know, I've been saying for years, water in the ground is money in the bank. And I read about a farmer down in the Wavering country said exactly that, you know, that he was right on it. Water in the ground is money in the bank. Like a year ago when, when, when people were talking about drought because it hadn't rained for a while, I said, you know, in Southeast Saskatchewan and Manitoba, they don't need to worry. It's, in fact, several of the last years, we haven't had much rain and we still had crops. That's because the water's in the ground. This year it ain't. And my farm this year, I had to take the dry auger and I had dust to three feet and a little bit after that. So this year we need rain. Uh, we probably in this area got enough snow to get a crop out of the ground. After that, we need rain and it needs to be, needs to be timely. So, hey, Les, sorry. I, uh, Les, I, 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 in yeah. terms of solutions, you know, it's commonly spoken of that, you know, the thing to do is put a, a deep rooted plant like alfalfa or something like that. Uh, I say on a, if you know there's a slope to to try and pull the water up. Is there anything to that in terms of reducing the salinity, uh, you know, expansion? Well, certainly in, in, in the shallow steeps, and there's one at Swift Current, uh, and, and Ken Wall was uh, involved with, with that, uh, with Stapoon, where they only had a few feet of glacial stuff, and there was a little underground dam, and they used alfalfa, and alfalfa is a huge, yeah, alfalfa is a huge thing. I, I forgot an example on, a, on an urban example here. There was a, a subdivision in Saskatoon, and there was some uh, alfalfa. The, the developer was tired of not getting any money, so he put up a, a golf driving range, and he didn't want dust in there, so he said you had to plant it to alfalfa. So it was several years in alfalfa, and in 2007, the August long weekend, we had four inches of rain. Nice gentle rain all weekend. That alfalfa was dry, went out, and, the, and the, the, that rain had wet the alfalfa up to two feet, exactly as serious states it would. On a clay soil, it would have brought the water up four feet, uh, water table on a summer fall, and it had no effect on the alfalfa. So alfalfa is huge, absolutely. Mm -hmm. I, I, if there's something where you've got an identified area where you want to use up water, that was the that was the backbone of the uh, thing in, in Montana in those years. But you know, if you're sitting here with a with a thing underneath you, planting the nearest tail to alfalfa isn't going to do much. But if you if you've got an identified situation, the problem is that everybody, uh, most people have thought that's all we got. You know, all you do is take the nearest tail and plant it to alfalfa, and uh, you'd, yeah. you'd have it. I remember when we dealt with, and a, a guy had a slough over the hill, and he said, "I think that slough over the hill is causing my salinity." And I saw it up and had a look, and I measured the water, and, and it wasn't too salty, and. and uh, I said, is that slough, is that slough, uh, does that slough go dry? No, it's always got water. Well, water can't stay and go both. Oh, that's question, please. <laughs> yeah. So you have to understand, you know. And uh, so this, another, this, another slide here, Les, that actually talks the difference between ETOC solution for salinity, you know, and we talk about alkalinity, which is another layer to this. 
Is there a third step that you'd actually look at to actually address fixing yeah, the problem I, when you talk about yeah, alkalinity? We don't have that much of it. If you've got sodic soils, and true sodic soils, we, we almost have none of them. We have the solanets thing, which is all of the above, but sodic soils yeah. we don't. But in that, you add, add gypsum, and, plate, and there's places where they do have that, but we don't have much of it here. That's why I didn't, didn't mention it in this situation. So, so that would be more Alberta. So, you talked about that zone through Alberta. That'd be more soils that uh, the combination of everything. Yeah, yeah, and and then soil nuts, and then you get into things like the deep plowing and the deep prepping and all those sorts of things. But uh, I think today just stick to, stick to that. Now there is another the, the other the other kicker about drainage and leaching. Where are you going to put the crappy water? Think about that one. Yeah, that that's a that's a societal problem. <laughs> I, I guess that's, uh, that, that, that begs the question, Les, that I have, and, you know, and I look at what's happened across the West, especially Saskatchewan, you know, in the last 10 years, the amount of surface drainage that has actually happened in fields, you know, where they're going out and basically allowing the, you know, all these potholes, I'm in pothole country, getting the water out of the potholes through surface drainage, you know, moving it to a creek or down the ditch. Does that actually have a positive impact or no? Uh, it, it's not hurting anything, but you know most of the most of those situations, the problem is the water itself, not not the salts that are the, that are in it. Uh, it's it's mm -hmm. mainly just you know you've had too much rain and it's got got nowhere to go. There there is right. another another part of fixing the problem. It's called leaching alone. And at the University of Saskatchewan Goodale Farm, just a few miles from Saskatoon, the forestry farm aquifer is there, and we knew it was there. We nearly had drilled a hole before in another purpose, so we knew. What we're, so we went in and, and drilled the drilled the hole, and, and uh, 130 feet. There's an aquifer, you know, about 10, 20 feet thick, good thick aquifer, with pretty salty water in it, you know, 3,000. And uh, we knew it was going to flow, so we drilled it, and it flowed, and we put in a well with a big enough screen that we could do something with. So I wanted to see what we could do with leaching alone. And I did this just to show people that we understood what the problem was and that we, we knew what, what we could do to fix it. So we set up, uh, we took that uh, that well, used that water, it was 300,000 parts per million of, of salts, and set up an uh, experiment where we used uh, drip irrigation, the kind they use in Israel, and set up little pots, simple little pots, Yes or no, we either irrigated or we didn't. And in 1988, when there was absolutely bare ground, we grew 50 bushels. And in one year, we had about four or five years, we grew 110 bushels of, of barley on this salty ground. And so I brought the bureaucrats out and they said, oh, Henry, you've got the solution to the problem. Why don't you gear this up and do it on 40 acres? I said, no, I'm shutting it down. Why? Well, you, you can see the picture in my book. I've got it. Uh, we had a water table well, and the water table is about four feet. We're putting on this water, we're putting on 700 pounds of salt with every inch of irrigation water. Now, if we wanted to fix that, we could put in a tile drainage and just keep washing it through. You can grow you can grow tomatoes in seawater if you keep washing it through. It's been done. Hmm. So you could keep washing it through, but we were right in the bottom. We had no place to drain to, and where are you going to put the crappy water anyhow? So we did that just to prove to ourselves and to everybody that we understood the problem. So leaching alone would work in the short term, but it isn't going to work in the long term unless you got some place to put the water. Mm. Okay. So 
Any other questions dealing with what we've talked about so far? There's just a couple of things to. Yeah, we do have a question here from Barry, and, and, and it's more about, you know, we live in not the Arctic, but next to the Arctic, and we get these freeze thaw cycles. What, what impact does frost actually have? And, you know, in the last number of years here, we've seen it where, you know, we had frost boils on our roads into July and August. Um, does frost actually play a role in actually creating fragments or areas for that water to move down? Call it, call it man-made or human, uh, the environment's own drainage system. Is that true or false? I, I don't see where that would have any impact. Uh, you know, you can have uh, at that beachy site, we actually had pingos. You can have the, the pressure so high that it's finding its way out all by itself. And, you know, people, the back end of the tractor will go down. There's a picture in my book. I had to, one of my helpers, I took a fence post and he went and he shoved his fence post down this thing. He said, I want danger pay. I said, you don't need danger pay if you go in. You don't need any pay of any kind. But anyhow, uh, you know, there's, there's, I don't, I don't think frost bales are going to have any, any effect now. And that could be a, an indication, though, that there's water pressure from below that's pushing that up? Or... Well, it could be. Yeah, it could be. Uh, yeah, there could be. I, I haven't really observed it, but there, there could be uh, uh, situations where uh, uh, the uh, water from below is keeping water there and then it freezes. But uh, oftentimes what it is, we had one in, in our uh, uh, super grid in our, our arm of Dundurn and it was simply a matter of uh, all, all those ditches are supposed to drain and they put in a culvert and set it too high and the water was there and it, it broke the road down for that reason so yeah. so, so Les yeah. what what I'm getting so really the salinity problem goes up and down it gets better and it gets worse on its yeah. own regardless of what we do almost and that's related to the amount of rainfall and the depth of the water table. Is that right? That's right, yeah. So when it gets really dry through droughts, the water table goes down and the salinity problem, in fact, reduces. Is that right? Well, uh, yes, overall it would be because eventually, eventually the heads on the aquifers are going to go down too. Right. And then it down. You see, yeah, that's that's a good point, Mike. I remember when I moved to Dunder, got that farm at Dundurn, uh, my good neighbor Henry Block had farmed there all his life, and we started into uh, into uh, continuous cropping and and uh, zero till and all those good things. And he, he you know, so he'd seen the salinity problem much longer than I out in the Allen Hills. And he said, you know, when you when you do the the the, the zero till and continuous cropping like we're doing and growing crops, the, the salinity disappears, and it did. But guess what? It's back again. <laughs> and that's, that's, that's what Howard Anford said in, in uh, Highwood Bench, too. They thought they had it pretty well under control. But guess what? It's back again. You know, we yeah. had, like, we've had, well, uh, the, the, we'll get to that in the, in the last slide. But I think we should spend a, a few minutes talking about how to cope with the, cope with the problem. So uh, if you've got a situation, and I, I credit Lyle Cowell here. There was a meeting in a small town near Yorkton last year. And, and they had standing room only. They're almost standing on top of one another. But uh, Lyle said, you know, when you've got a cow in a herd that's not giving you any profit, you call the thing. Why do we keep taking these patches of ground 
and pouring seed in and pouring fertilizer and getting nothing back and losing money. So if you can't fix the problem, if you're going to cope with it, the word is perennial cropping, and in one word, grass. And there's a revolution that's happened in the last 10 years. I'm a bit of a slow learner. I'm just doing it now on my farm. And this this uh, shows the uh, the uh, salinity tolerance of a bunch of different crops. And this is the wheat uh, uh, AC saltlander wheatgrass, uh, green wheatgrass, which is credit to Harold Savoon and people from the uh, Agriculture Canada Research Station at Swift Current. And it costs about as much as, uh, as canola for seed, so it's expensive. But I bought some and I'm working on uh, establishing it because I've got exactly that situation. Now, I used to handle it this way and uh, I just go and mow the kosher so it doesn't get out of hand. And uh, then I would tell the guy, when back in the days we were doing a hirest, I'd tell him, just don't go there. You know, that was that was my precision. I, just don't go there. And we'd put, uh, we'd put uh, more, uh, put seed in, but we wouldn't put anything else. But later years, he's got uh, everything is done at seeding, so you put all this stuff in. So quit putting it in. But I could, I could make. There's another example. I could make a case on my farm for peas being a salt tolerant crop on the place where I haven't grown anything for the last X years. In 2005, we grew a tolerable crop of peas, and uh, this is we were in the downward cycle at that time. And uh, so the peas were uh, the uh, the uh, there, and I, I put a, a water table. I didn't put a water table well in, but I dug the water table's high. It's a saline seed. It's a saline soil. The water table must be high. And I went down to nine feet, and there was no water table. What's up, Doc? You know why? <laughs> well, it's because we had the dry cycle, and and the heads had gone down on the aquifers. So then we planted peas in 2005. And it rained seven inches in May and June, and it flushed those salts down. Right. And that the whole quarter yielded 57 bushels, but that and you know that that part didn't read yield any 57 bushels, but it yielded. So, so the big thing is is get rid of those get rid of those acres and and uh, start doing something with it. And this saltlander is uh, is uh, is a really good uh, thing. The thing is, it's got the salt tolerant of tall wheatgrass, but it's got uh, it's, it's good to put in the front end of a cow. As brome grass, so it's it's the real deal. It costs money, but the the few things I've learned now, there's probably lots of people listening to this that know a lot more about establishing grass than I do. But I've read a few things, and a lot of people say uh, seed it in the fall rather than the spring. And uh, uh, the the two things you need to establish a grass stand, in my experience, I'll, about a year from now, I'll know whether I'm successful or not. I did this last year and I thought it had failed, but I think there's grass there. The thing you need, two things you need is patience and a mower and sell your cultivator. You know, at one time this summer, you know, you, you don't plant grass and come out a week later, is the thing up yet? You know, it just ain't. <laughs> and so what I planted on mine is uh, uh, two thirds saltlander and one third uh, slender wheatgrass. Slender wheatgrass is salt tolerant, but it's short lived. And uh, the book says that it'll make make heads in in one year, and I did did have that. So uh, the whole thing is, is is establishing something, and you can get then if you're lucky, you can get uh, some hay growing, and you can sell some hay. So you turn uh, profitable uh, unprofitable acres into profitable acres. I think I, I talk every once in a while. Uh, uh, Mike, you'll remember Terry Aberhart out in the out in mm -hmm. Manitoba border, Saskatchewan Manitoba border. They, they've they've taken a lot of people are 
taking taking that uh, that idea get get rid of the uh, get rid of the uh, unprofitable acres. So yeah. and Saltlander is it's a real game changer. Sure, this stuff is expensive, but it's a job. So yeah. I, I learned in um, your book. I, I learned in your book less. You sell it in the winter time. Yeah. <laughs> oh yeah. Thanks. Thanks for that. <laughs> I have notes here, but when we came to fixing the problem, the first thing I always start off with was a little laugh and say, sell it in the wintertime. And don't think that don't happen. Uh, you read the Western producer. Uh, since we've got, uh, Manitoba's got uh, a really good uh, program. I can look all the soils information up online in Saskatchewan too. Alberta has too, but I, I'm a little a little slow on, on the methodology of getting it. It's, it's a good program, but I'm too, I can't access near as good. But but I'll take these ads and look them up, you know. And I had a I had an example of a, of a student that came to me and somebody had had bought a section of land for a million dollars. And uh, in the wintertime, of course, in the wintertime was all white. Guess what? Come summer, same color, you know. And that happens. I have a slide I used to, it was out in the, in the Long Lake country and uh, there's this for sale sign in February. So I showed that if I was far enough away from that area so nobody would recognize what field it was, I would show it and say, uh, you know, here, here it is. Uh, only thing about it come July, same color. So uh, I learned that from, a, there was an old federal guy that I shared an office with and he did a lot of work on Salsa India over the years. And he had a little stamina. The, 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 the best thing is, is sell it in the winter time. <laughs> I have uh, a couple thought, thoughts here, Les, when it comes to, uh, and this was brought up in my conversation with Corey too, but one of the challenges we, and Corey's kind of identified that like through their mapping, you know, obviously mapping salinity, that it's, it's not just usually in one spot. It might be in 10 spots within a field. So then logistically, you know, we've got, guys farming thousands of acres, how do they actually go and address 10 or 15 acres in a quarter section that's scattered all over the field with say, putting in like a tolerant, you know, grass, you know, if that's not an option, which is probably logistically, it becomes very tough for these large farms to address right. it that way. Corey and I had a discussion about that very thing a few years ago. I won't mention the name, but he was an old student of mine and he's a big farmer down in the South country. And, and there was this half section of land and, and uh, Corey had sent me the legal location and, and uh, there was a half section and on the north end there was x acres you know kind of in a v-shape that was the problem so I got out the water well map and sure enough on the very next quarter there was a shallow intertail aquifer that was flowing you know there was a flowing well in the next quarter I said why doesn't he plant that down to grass farmers don't like grass <laughs> now in that case yeah. it could be done but Corey's absolutely right when it's scattered all over the place that's the, then you got to decide have you got farmland or don't you yeah yeah so the next question and this was brought up too it's almost something we should be pushing for as an industry we got inside of a, a species of crop like barley or say canola why aren't we providing ratings on their tolerance to salinity like i don't think we have that today but if we did like you said maybe we could pick a pea variety that was more tolerant to salinity than than say ones that we thought we were, we should grow so should we oh, be no, pushing I, for ratings yeah, on crop? Like, oh, I think we have that. You go through the websites, it's there. And uh, the problem is when you're doing an experiment to find out what's tolerant and what isn't, a field experiment, the standard four times replicated randomized complete walk is a complete waste of time. 
for that very reason. But the, the method you use and the old literature's there, and, I, and it's accessible at the University Harvest, the, the university site now. Uh, they, and some of it's published scientific literature. You you take uh, the species you're working with, be it annual copper, perennial, or whatever, and you plant it in strips across the gradient of that. And then you simply go out and, and you use the crop itself and where it's good, you sample it and see what it yields and see what the soil's doing. And then, and then you get a you get a line that shows you, uh, you do a regression. Now, recent work of Swift Current has put a little uh, more detailed mathematics on it where they can do a curve line instead of what, you know, but the, the stuff is there. Now, here, here that brings up a good point, Craig. Uh, when the Global Institute of Water Security started here, of, of, of food security, pardon me, the second director was a, was a guy that had actually spent some time at Rothamsted. So when he came, I said, Morris, uh, I'll, I'll take you out to the farm and show you. So I took him out and I showed him my little uh, salt patch and I showed him the kosher. And I said, uh, can you, if you can put the salt tolerance of kosher into wheat or canola, you've got something going for you. Oh yeah, we can do that. I don't think anybody's doing it. But as far as the ratings of what's already there, that, that's that's available. Yeah. Yeah. It's, and sorry, I I I brought that question up because it was a question that came from from Zenith, yeah. and and the suggestion was maybe we should have uh, our producer commissions doing some of this work to actually increase the the understanding of of the rating systems for say a clot barley or for canola and to give us some leverage to actually say well we know we got salinity it's we've done the mapping it's 15 percent of this field maybe maybe in those 15 percent of the field we put a different variety that's more tolerant yeah well yeah there's the the, the difference between varieties are not not huge but uh yeah, for example work from years ago the in barley generally the six rows were more tolerant than than uh, than uh, the two rows and and barley, you know, we didn't say as much as we should have about the coping with it. In in annual cropping, barley is the thing. In fact, you know, I've known people that said, "Well, I've got a quarter section that's not all that good. I'll plant it to barley uh, because it'll grow something on that, and that's the only barley I'm going to plant." <laughs> and you guys know how the crop search system works, so <laughs> well. You know, maybe yeah. I can throw a little bit of a highlight on this because I, I searched the literature pretty extensively. And, and again, on a global basis, because it's not just a localized situation, there's a massive, massive amount of uh, work going on in terms of genetics because now with markers and so on, we can identify the genes and so on and, and start moving them around. And, and you know, on, there are also uh, saline tolerant crops that live in saline and kosher is a good example. So you're yeah. right, Les. There are many, many scientists globally looking at how can we transfer those mechanisms of tolerance into the yeah. crops that we're growing because this is a growing problem. The problem isn't getting smaller; it's just getting bigger everywhere. So, so I think that's the the sort of the initiative that that people are pinning their hopes on to solve yeah. this problem or live with this problem. I don't think we're solving the problem. I think you've clarified that solving the problem is not that easy so i think we're going to have to develop a way to live with the problems and that's the major emphasis that i see going on yeah and there really isn't any work but but again you're not nice crossing t's you know uh unless unless there's a big breakthrough where you can take the salt tolerance of kosher and put it into crops you know you can get a little better a little better mousetrap yeah. but 
it's 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 not going not going to solve it. Which well, brings Salt, us to Saltlander is an example of of somewhat of a solution, right? It's that's it's right. An example. And that, you know, whenever you get that that change less taking place, that's a genetic change. That's more than just an adoption. There's been a genetic change in that variety. Oh, and you're right with the things that people can do, and they know that it's not just like I don't. I always thought I was a bit shortchanged at university. I didn't learn enough genetics, but but uh, you know, there, there's uh, there's all sorts of ways of figuring out. They used to it used to be kind of a random thing. You, Mixed A with B and hope you got C, you know. But That's now right. they, you know, we need we need uh, uh, this sort of a gene that does this thing, and we can pick it out and put it back in. So yeah, no, yeah, that that would that would be the coming. game. But you see, people have come up all the time. Like there was somebody said, oh, we got a barley variety in Australia, and it's much better than the rest. Well, their their salts there are all sodium chloride, and we don't have that. I didn't say much about that because you get into chemistry and you kind of lose people, but but our our salts are almost all sulfates and, and almost all magnesium sulfates. So, so uh, uh, but yeah, if there's something to do with the plant kingdom. So the final point here, and this this is uh, this drives it home. This is uh, an observation well that was put in in 1967 by this Bill Manili. You got my book there. Hold up the cover. Turn the inside cover. See if you can get it to show. Yeah. This one? Yeah, okay, there's Rennie. Go up to the next one. That's Christensen. The bottom one's Manili. That's Manili. Rennie was my boss, and Christensen and Manili were the two guys. Without them, we'd have never got to first base. Manili was with the Research Council in 1967, and he set all these observation wells up all over the province. And you go to the www.watersask.ca and go to uh, Water information, go to observation wells, and this is what you get. And this is one at Melford. It's a, a, a thing about 30 feet deep, and you see the blue line there in 1967. That's where it was. And then, and who knows what it was? And before that, if we had the things before, the, the thing would be waving and waving in this all the way back. I'm convinced of that. So in 1975, it came to the peak, and then it was a, a net cumulative drought from 1975 to 2005. So that was a desalinization mm -hmm. sequence, 30 years. 30 years was climate, other things as weather. Now, I had a guy from the uh, globalist, the water security look at this, and he says, oh, 85, 90, well, that's 10 years. That could be the sunspots. <laughs> but anyhow, look what happened in 2005. Yep. 2005 was the big snow year. And oftentimes, these turn on a big snow year, because a big snow can be a big recharge of the groundwater and up it came and then dropped a little bit and in 2010 on my farm at Dundurn I had 20 inches of rain 10 inches were too much that brings the water table up huge amounts and then a peak to 2016 but look where it's going hmm we might wish to have our salinity back right We've because this is predicting drought uh, like I say on our uh, like this year People have got the notion they can grow crops without water. In fact, I had an old student at the crop show come to me and said, we grow a really good crop on three inches of water. No way you did it on three inches of water. You did it on three inches of rain. The rest came out of the soil. And what we didn't realize until recently, not only the, the uh, moisture holding capacity of the soil, but the water table. We had no idea. Water table wasn't in our vocabulary. 
And it came because of my farm after the after that big rain year. It was 2012. I was showing my neighbors we were going through the through the field, and and here was a, it hadn't rained for weeks, and the crop was doing good. And I took the soil probe and it went in like butter. I said, "There's got to be a water table here. There, there, there's no way, you know, it hasn't rained. The crop's using water. Uh, why do I still get the soil probe in? Oh, there's no water table here. The water table was at four feet. So then I put water tables in two or three places around the corner. And I had places where the water table was right at the soil surface, and now it's dry. The water table's dry. We're headed the other side of the cycle. So we've had years when we don't need much rain, and timing doesn't matter because the soil holds you through. This year we've got enough. Now not everywhere, you know, places like Kevin Hershey. Cabri got two inches of rain, so they've got a little more. But we have we have nothing. We got probably enough of the snow here in North Battlefront. I just heard a thing this morning said they've had the lowest precipitation since they've kept records. So we probably have enough to get it out of the ground. But we need rain, and it has to be timely, and it has to be enough of it, or there's going to be no crop. My advice to farmers is always beware the other side of the average. And Mother Nature moves in cycles. And uh, I don't want to start on the global warming thing. I've got a lot of I've got a lot of data about that. <laughs> the rainfall thing. One of the next green news. I've I've got uh, I've got the record on rain as well. And uh, you know we're 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 in a different period. But anyhow, that's the record. And you look at it, 16 and what it's done. And you know that's that's several meters that water table. That's meters on the y-axis. That's several meters that it's gone gone up. And now it's headed back down. So is it headed back down to where it was in 67 and beyond? I don't know. Anybody that thinks yeah, they can, so, anybody who thinks they can forecast the future has got connections that I haven't got. So, <laughs> <laughs> so based on this trend, obviously, I mean, we're heading into what could be considered one of the most profitable times of crop production with the crop prices where they're at. But you're also saying we're we're moving into what appears to be a trend of drier bias basis. What these hydrographs are showing us, water tables are dropping. The only thing, what I always say is rainfall is a probability water in the ground is money in the bank and that's that's become the thing and, and that's what saved people last few years and it's not there this year so my advice for people if it's an old family farm well established lots of old land some of them 20 30 thousand acres go ahead and people you know canola is 16 dollars a bushel why don't you really pour the coals that's all right if it don't rain that nitrogen's going nowhere we proved that in the 80s when uh, when soil testing first started, Rika said, I can tell the dealers are recommending too much fertilizer because there's too much nitrogen left in the soil. Well, that was just because it's dry. But if you're a young person with a big mortgage, I'd put uh, seed in the ground and uh, be ready to do something about it if, if it turns out. The only way we're having an average crop through most of Saskatchewan, now Alberta's a different thing because their water table's never very far away, but most of southern Saskatchewan from Saskatoon south, the only way we're having an average crop is to have above average rate. And so uh, if I was a young one of the big mortgage, I'd keep the expenses down and take the maximum crop insurance. I've always I've always done that. On a dry year, take 80% and on a wet year, take 60%. Yeah. But anyhow, but no, I don't predict the future. Anybody thinks they predict the future. Is, you know, <laughs> all I can do yeah. is analyze the past and see what it's done. And right now, my yeah. So, so if I if I take something from what you just said, if we're going in a drier bias, the water table is dropping. If we have an average year of rainfall, theoretically, we could move these salts back down and actually establish some crop in these medium areas or moderate areas of salinity because we actually have a place to move the salts when the water table is dropping. 
that's exactly what happened in 2005. But see, that was the year that yeah. things turned around went the other way. So we're right at the bottom of it. So anyhow, I think yeah. we, we more than used up our time, guys. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I always say when the conversation is good, an hour is never enough less. So it's, uh, it's, uh, we appreciate your, uh, your, uh, your thoughts and your your uh, your commitment over the past forty and fifty years of of uh, actually looking at this subject at, at in depth and, and really at the ground level, trying to help growers understand it. And even though you did it back in the seventies and eighties, here we are in twenty twenty one having the same conversation because it's uh, exactly it, it is a big concern. We're exactly where we were. This is exactly what was going on in, at, at that time. In fact, at that time, they even said one of our first jobs was in the hills east here, and they had the eroded knolls on the top of the road, and they they were considered to be part of the problem. You know, it was uh, some people said it was growing ten percent a year, and we weren't going to have any more land to farm. Well, it didn't turn out that way. Mother Nature has her own yeah. ways to do. It. So, yep. Anyhow, yeah. thank you for the opportunity. I'm Thanks glad all all worries yeah. me the technology, but seemed to work today. So we're good. <laughs> yeah. A uh, couple quick questions as we wrap here, and we're a bit over time. Any thoughts on the Red River Valley less uh, when it comes to the forward look? I, I actually, it's funny. I just watched, I was watching CTV News last night, Winnipeg News, and it actually said they had recorded 16 consecutive uh, months of below average precipitation in Winnipeg. So they are actually saying, almost record low amounts of moisture in Winnipeg for 16 consecutive months. So it could actually speak to your hydrograph from Melfort that actually is saying maybe the subsoil moisture in, in the valley is also dropping um, basis of that indication from Winnipeg. Well, there, is, there is an interaction there and the, and the aquifer there is, is, is not the glacial, it's the, uh, it's the uh, limestone aquifer. There, there's, uh, there's flowing wells in, in, the, in the basin there. But you know, it's, it doesn't cause too much. You, you get a little bit of salinity along road ditches. Road ditches flush up what's already there, so they do they do have aquifers underneath. But I and I don't know what they have for. They have observation wells there too, but most of the observation wells in Manitoba are uh, for a specific purpose, like Cinnaboy Delta Aquifer, and, and uh, they they uh, they irrigate out of that, so they're keeping track of that. All the ones that Manili put in were wanting to. To, you know, they were put in purposely to measure Mother Nature cycles. That's what he wanted to do. You know, you know, Les, you mentioned that can a farmer just do that on his own farm? You said this Dutch auger, auger thing could be done. Would that be of some benefit to a farmer to actually have an observation well on his farm? When we went to, uh, uh, I did a field day in, in, uh, two or three years ago with uh, crop intelligence in South Country at, at uh, Imperial Saskatchewan, just south of, south of Waters. And uh, I had done my homework and knew what, what was going on there, knew there was slendy. And, and uh, so we went out in, in the field and, and they, they were digging holes because they had the moisture probes, so they're demonstrating the moisture probes. And they didn't have them. Those ones didn't go deep enough to get the water table. But anyhow, we, we were digging away there and I could see that the water table was nigh. So I had a, a guy who had been a former student of mine. I sent him back to the truck, get the auger. So I started the auger going and, and the young guy came along, took it over. and. And they didn't put a well in right then, but uh, it was obvious to me that the water table was about four feet at that location. And the farmer took a look, and the next day he sent his hired man to town to get the auger, and he's been putting them in. So, but I don't know what anybody else has. And I've been I've been after the the uh, and and CCAs to do it to, to do it too, but 
Now these these newer moisture probes, they'll do something the same thing, but it's nice to have there's nothing like going down and having the bell ring and show a guy what's going on to yeah, I mean, if I'm 80 years old, I can do it in half an hour. It cost me $10 in materials. They're asking a lot more people that can do I don't think people are aware of that, to tell you. And in spite of all your meetings and so on in Saskatchewan, I've never heard anybody talking about this in all the years I've been on the road. With, well, we with... never did it. I never did it until my farm in 2012. That's when I first, we, the water table was something down there somewhere, but we never paid any attention to it. Oh, learned all this on my now when I go back in the literature it's there some of the old soil survey reports the Portage the Prairie soil survey report in Manitoba they, they went and, and measured measured wells over time and show, published them right in the, in the soil survey report and I stumbled across two or three just doing a little homework for this it's been around but uh, it hasn't been in our thinker you know it just hasn't been in our thinker so, uh, so yeah, that I mess, be, does that mean you're a slow learner too well, well, you all, you know, you kind of, <laughs> you you have to you have to have a question, and my what got me into it is I'm standing here, the crop is growing, it hasn't rained, the soil's full of water, something's not right, kids. <laughs> <laughs> all right, well, that's uh, that's great. You know, I uh, I always say you want to you want to feel young, you surround yourself with old old guys like these guys, but. Uh, if you want to, you want to live live young. You got to act like these guys, and yeah. still have a passion for agriculture. And uh, that's that's the most exciting part for me. I'm looking. I'm saying I want to have that passion that you guys have. But, uh, you know, if you want to read, learn all this stuff, just just get Les's book. It uh, it's something every agronomist on the prairie should have. I'm promoting your book for you, Les. You know, because I know you don't want to do that. But well, uh, this is this is easy to read. It's easy to read. That's the the beauty of it. The, the biggest yeah. copy I had when it first came out, I printed 2,000 copies, and, and one egg rep said, is that going to be enough? I said, oh, I don't know. I, I have to test the market. And I'd already marketed one book, so I knew a little bit about book marketing. And I said in the preface, I said, this is not a textbook. It doesn't deal with this and this. He said, you're right. It's not a textbook. It doesn't put you to sleep when you read it. <laughs> he said, that's a good <laughs> Okay. Anyway. Thanks, Les. Well, there's, there's some questions we maybe didn't get to. We'll, we'll post the answers to those questions, thoughts to those questions, I guess, uh, on a follow-up uh, email that'll be on our website. I'll get Les and Mike to maybe offer their thoughts on the questions that were asked again, just so there's a, a hard copy, which uh, you can come back to and see. So once again, thanks very much for coming on, Les. It's been great. Uh, really enjoyed the conversation and hopefully everybody got something out of, out of today's uh, podcast. Thanks to everybody there. It's, uh, I, I don't enjoy not seeing the whites of your eyes, but I know you're out there. So thanks to all of you. <laughs> yeah, you bet. Okay. Take care. Yeah. You bet. Take care.